Mark chapter 1 is where we are today, and as I get started, I'm, I'm reminded that every story has a beginning. Now, that's obvious. It goes without saying, right? But as somebody who, at least in part, tells stories for a living, I also know that it is pretty important to find the right place to start when you begin a story. Think about that. Where does your story start? Where does your story start? In at least one sense, my story starts in a small town in the middle of northern Wisconsin. Uh, if you, in your mind, can imagine a map, if you were to draw a straight line from Green Bay, Wisconsin on the east to Minneapolis, St. Paul on the west, uh, you'd have a pretty accurate map of Wisconsin Highway 29. And about halfway across that line, between Green Bay and Minneapolis-St. Paul, is, is a small little town by the name of Stanley. It's right before you get to Boyd, just after you pass through Thorpe, there is the little town of Stanley, population 3,600, give or take a few. And that's, in a sense at least, where my story began. Today, Stanley's five square miles is home to to Ace Ethanol, Wisconsin's first large-scale ethanol plant, Stanley's Better Business Bureau website brags about. Now, by large-scale, it employs 40 whole people. Um, but that's their first large... And, and there's, there's the ethanol plant. And the other thing in Stanley these days is Stanley Correctional Institution, a medium security prison run by the state of Wisconsin. Outside of that, there's not a whole lot to Stanley, Wisconsin. Of course, when I was there, neither of those things were there yet. Back in the mid-70s, there wasn't ethanol plants and there was no prison in Stanley. The things that mattered to my family was Stanley Boyd High School, where my mom was a math teacher, and the Stanley Corporation, not the company you've heard of that makes the tools with the yellow labels, a different Stanley Corporation. This Stanley uh, made uh, tables for school cafeterias. You've never heard of them. But that's where my dad worked as, a, as an engineer designing manufacturing processes to put together those tables. Uh, the school's still there. Stanley Corporation isn't anymore. But that little town out in the middle of nowhere was where my story started. We didn't stay there long. By the time I turned three, my family moved south to northern Indiana, to Kendaville, where I grew up. Uh, my dad followed work, uh, the, left the company with the cafeteria tables, and started figuring out how to put together some of the very first microwaves that they sold to, to consumers for home use in Kendaville, Indiana. But my story started, at least, in Stanley. And as beginnings go, Stanley, Wisconsin was a good place to start. Last week we started, also, last week we started a new sermon series, and it is debatable whether or not the Sunday after Christmas is a good place to start a new sermon series. Uh, uh, Sunday after Christmas traditionally is the least attended Sunday of the year, and you add, add the kind of temperatures we had last week on top of that, it is definitely a sparsely attended Sunday. And if you happen to miss that, if you happen to miss that, we did uh, get the website working again. 
but we've got that back up and running, and you should be able to listen to the sermons online or podcasts on, on Google Play or iTunes or Pocket Cast, any of those. You can catch up that way. Last week, we started this new series called The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's based on the Gospel of Mark, and, and last week we focused in, we, we were introduced to, to the author of the Gospel and the historical setting in which it was written. Last week, we made it through an entire one verse of the Gospel of Mark. And if we're going to go through the Gospel of Mark, we probably better pick things up at some point. And today, we're going to do that. You better buckle your seatbelts. More than a thousand percent faster this Sunday, we're going to truck through the text in Mark's first chapter. I do want to remind you, though, of that verse we talked about last week, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, where Mark introduces his work as the beginning of of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And if it really is, as Mark says, the beginning of the gospel, the question that begs is, where should we start? Where should it all begin? And as we read together, one of the first things we'll notice about Mark's gospel is he doesn't start in the typical place, the same kind of place where the other gospel writers begin. For example, Matthew starts kind of with a, a split screen, a split scene, uh, uh, two stories in wildly different places, wildly different settings that pretty soon by events are going to come crashing together. As Matthew starts his story, he begins in a, in a tiny little village in northern Galilee where, where a, a local construction worker, a carpenter, builder is, is sitting trying to piece together what he ought to do after his fiancée turned up pregnant with a ch child that's not his. And from there, from there, Matthew takes us to a prince's palace in Persia where some, where some of the king's advisors are, are searching the skies, looking for a glimpse of the future, and find written there in the stars the birth announcement for a Judean king. Within a chapter, those two wildly different stories a peasant's house, a, a king's palace are brought together as the Magi come to visit Jesus. Luke starts his story in the temple in Jerusalem where an angel informs an aging priest that he and his elderly wife are about to become parents for the very first time. Then the angel wings his way to Nazareth where he meets a young virgin girl and tells her that soon she too, like her elderly cousin Elizabeth, is about to give birth to a son. John starts even farther back, with words that echo the story of creation in the beginning. And he starts in eternity past with the eternal Word, who not only was with God, but who himself was and is God. But not Mark. Mark doesn't start with any of those stories. Instead, Mark marks the beginning of the beginnings of the Gospel with these words. You have your Bibles open? Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 1. It says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. 
a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for Him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So begins, Mark says, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. First thing you notice is he doesn't start at the normal place. Second thing you notice is that Mark tells a strikingly simple story. You might even call it austere. It does not include a lot of details. The story Mark tells is as remarkable for the things that he leaves out as it is the things that he includes. And that is uncharacteristic for Mark. If this week you took time to read the Gospel of Mark, maybe you have noticed this. Maybe you noticed that that Mark frequently includes details in the stories that he tells that the other Gospels leave out. In comparison with the other synoptic Gospels, you know what I mean by the word synoptic, right? Synoptic literally means with one eye. Synoptic is a word that we use to describe the first three Gospels of the four in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all seem to look at the story of Jesus from a very similar perspective. John takes us around the side and shows us a little bit different angle on the story of Jesus, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are are very similar, yet different in the way they tell their story. And in comparison with the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one thing we notice is that Mark is the wordy one. Now maybe you're thinking, how can that be, Pastor Brad? Matthew has what, 28 chapters? Luke has 24? Mark, tiny little book, only 16 chapters. How How can the shortest Gospel be the wordiest one? Well, that's because Matthew and Luke both include additional scenes that Mark doesn't tell, especially when it comes to the teaching of Jesus. Matthew and Luke both seem very interested in the things that Jesus taught. Mark seems to focus in on, uh, more on what Jesus did. He includes some of Jesus' teaching, but he's especially focused in on what Jesus does. 
So Matthew and Luke are longer because they include those scenes that, that Mark doesn't include. But when it comes to the scenes that they have in common, the stories all of the Gospels tell, Mark tends to give greater detail. For example, the calming of the storm. That story, you know, the disciples and Jesus are in a boat and Jesus is sleeping and the storm comes and we're going to die. You remember that story? It's, if it wasn't for Mark, we would not know that Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat. He's the one that includes that detail there. In the healing of Jairus' daughter, you remember the synagogue leader that came to Jesus because his daughter was sick and about to die? Only Mark recounts the anxious words of the worried father. My daughter is dying, come. And only Mark tells us that when Jesus arrives, he, the words he speaks to the girl, Talitha Kum, little girl, get up. Only Mark includes those details. Or in the feeding of the 5,000, it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. Mark is the one who adds the detail that Jesus has them sit down specifically on the green grass. Frequently in Mark's Gospel, there are details that the other Gospels leave out. Yet, this story is different. We're used to Mark being wordier than the other Gospel writers, but in this beginning of the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus the Messiah, Mark breaks the mold. He pairs the story down to the most essential detail. It's almost like he is consciously leaving out every part of the story that isn't critical to the truth that he wants to relate. Compare him to the other Gospels. You'll notice that Mark does not dwell on the teaching of John the Baptist beyond recording his promise that the one coming after me, the one more powerful than I, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark doesn't dwell on the crowds coming out to be baptized by John. He notes their presence, but he makes no mention of the way John rebukes them for their hypocrisy or the way that he instructs those who honestly ask him, what should we do? Mark doesn't even mention John's reaction at seeing Jesus. In John's Gospel, we hear John the Baptist say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not... In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus comes and asks John to baptize him. And, and John says, who am I to baptize you? You should baptize me. Mark doesn't have any of those things. When it comes to the time of testing in the wilderness afterwards, Mark makes no mention of how Jesus was tempted by Satan. Just that he was. All of those details present in the other Gospels apparently weren't important to the point that Mark was trying to make in this passage. So he leaves them out. Of course, if that's the case, if he, if he narrows down the story to the essential details, we'd probably better pay close attention to what Mark includes because obviously he thinks that these things are important. And so far as Mark is concerned, this is where the Gospel of Jesus Christ begins. Where does it begin? First of all, I want you to notice it begins in the Old Testament. Mark starts with a quote that he attributes to the prophet Isaiah 
But actually that quotation is a compound quote. Only the second part of it comes from the prophet Isaiah. The first part actually comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20 to be exact, where God says to Moses, see, I am sending an angel, and you'll remember that word also means messenger. I am sending a messenger ahead of you to guard you along the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Malachi later will pick up those words from Exodus. Uh, He will pick up that quotation, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he adds to that picture a little bit more detail. Malachi 3.1, the prophet, God through the prophet says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will appear and he will come to your temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Only the second part of that quotation from the Old Testament comes from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 where God promises the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Mark connects the beginning of the Gospel with these Old Testament quotations. You see, in Jesus, something new is happening. After all, it is the Gospel, right? We talked about that last week. It is the good new Not the good news, it's singular. It's the good news. Something new is happening. But Mark wants us to understand this new thing that is happening is Jesus is something that is grounded in the law and the prophets. It is something shaped. It is something shaped by the expectation of the law and the prophets. It is something that is shaped by Israel's experiences with God's salvation in the past, this new thing happening in Jesus is, is shaped by Israel's experience of rescue from slavery in Egypt with Moses. And Israel's rescue from exile in Babylon with Malachi and Isaiah. It's a new thing, but it is. It is grounded in God's work to save. So in a sense, the story begins in the Old Testament. It also begins with somebody who dresses funny, right? Of all the details that Mark leaves out of this story, I think it's telling that he includes the details about John's wardrobes and diet. He wore clothes of camel's hair and a belt of leather, and he ate locusts and wild honey. You say, why was that important to John? Well, it reminds, or important to Mark, it reminds Mark of a story from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament history. On a day when Ahaziah, the king of Israel, sent messengers, he he was injured, he was worried about whether or not he would recover, so he sought a prophecy, he sought an oracle, he sought a fortune teller, to tell him his future. And rather than asking the prophets of God, he sends, he sends messengers to seek a, a word about his future from the fortune tellers in Gath, the servants of Beelzebub, the god of the Philistines. And as those messengers are on the way to Gath, on behalf of the king, they run into a man who scolds them. 
Why are you going to the Philistines? Isn't there God in Israel anymore? He says. And then after scolding them, he speaks a word of prophecy and sends the messengers back to the king with the message, you will not get out of your sickbed. You will surely die. Those messengers had no idea who that crazy guy out in the middle of nowhere was, but they took his words to heart and they took his words back to Ahaziah, delivered that message to him. And when the king says, tell me, give me a description of this guy you saw. Second Kings chapter 1, verse 8. They said, well, he had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And that description alone was enough to clue Ahaziah is. And the king replied, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Just the description of what Elijah was wearing was enough for the king to recognize who it was. And Mark hopes that for us, by telling us about John's hair coat, and the leather belt around John's waist, we might recognize, we might recognize who John the Baptist is. Luke spells it out. When the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, Gabriel tells Zechariah straight up, your son is going to go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah the prophet. Mark doesn't include that prophecy. Instead, he shows us that John the Baptist is, is, the one who goes forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. And in so doing, Mark is letting us know that after centuries of silence, a prophet has returned to Israel. After centuries of silence, the long-awaited forerunner of the Messiah, the return of Elijah, has come. It begins in the Old Testament. It begins with somebody who dresses funny. It also begins with the Spirit. If you read all of Mark's Gospel, you probably didn't notice, because you'd have to be looking pretty on purpose. But one thing Mark doesn't talk a whole lot about is the Holy Spirit. In fact, in all of Mark's Gospel, Mark mentions the Holy Spirit by name only six times. Yet in these few verses, at the very opening of the Gospel, Mark three times refers to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Three times. In this short passage, Mark talks about the Spirit. It's almost like Mark wants to make sure we notice John the Baptist promises the coming of the one who will baptize with the Spirit. As Jesus is baptized, he sees the Holy Spirit coming down out of heaven like a dove. And after Jesus is baptized, it is the Spirit who drives Jesus out into the wilderness for a time of testing. When you see something repeated in a gospel like this, you probably should take notice. The Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, Mark says. Who is the Spirit? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the manifest presence of the invisible God. That song we sang earlier, Holy Spirit, Thou art welcome in this place, omnipotent Father of mercy and grace. Thou art welcome in this place, 
We don't want to confuse the persons of the Father and the Holy Spirit. They are distinct, but it is God's Holy Spirit that makes the presence of the Almighty, omnipresent God manifestly present in a place. You might say that the Holy Spirit is the embodiment. And as soon as you said that, I would say, no, that's probably not the right word to use because you can't talk about the embodiment of somebody who is a spirit. So the embodiment probably isn't the right word, but know what I mean figuratively. The Spirit is the embodiment, the presence, the presence of God at work in the world. The Holy Spirit is manifest presence of divine initiative. And Mark wants us to know from the outset of this story that this is the work of God. It is not the will of men. It is not the words of men that bring this gospel about. This is something that God is doing in the world. This gospel is something that God Himself sets in motion. It's the promise of the Spirit that inspires John's preaching. It is the presence of the Spirit that affirms Jesus' identity. And it is the power of the Spirit that sustains Jesus in the time of testing in the wilderness. It begins in God's initiative. This good news is something that God is doing in the world. It starts in the Old Testament starts with a guy that dresses funny. It starts with the Holy Spirit. But if you were to say, where does it all begin? I'd also have to say it begins in the wilderness. Of all the locations where the Gospel could start, who would have guessed it begins in the wilderness. Where would you go looking for the arrival of God Himself in human history? In one of David's palaces? Up in Herod's temple? Those are the kinds of places you go looking for the arrival of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But no, for Mark, it begins in the wilderness. If you were to draw a straight line from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south, you'd have a pretty accurate map of the course of the Jordan River. But you'd have a very poor idea of what that actually was. Because the Jordan River wasn't just a line of water drawn across the Holy Land. The Jordan River carved its way right into the land of promise. If you look at a satellite image of Israel in the Middle East, you'll notice this deep gash that runs from north to south through Israel, carved over the years by the Jordan River. And it's out there, in that valley, that the Gospel begins. What's more, Mark doesn't spell this out completely, but we do know from the Gospel of John it's not just along the Jordan River where the Gospel begins, but John was baptizing on the far side of the Jordan River. The Gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't even begin 
in the promised land proper. It begins on the far side of the river. It begins out there in the wilderness. Why wilderness? Why start the story of Jesus out there? The wilderness has always been a place where God teaches His people who and whose they are. Can I say that to you again? That might be important. The wilderness has always been a place where God teaches His people who and whose they are. There is something about being in the wilderness that thrusts God's people onto the mercy and grace of God to provide for them. In the city, you can find work. In the country, you can grow food. In the wilderness, you eat locusts and wild honey and trust that God will provide. There's something about the wilderness that forces you to rely on the mercy and grace of God for His provision. It's also in the wilderness where God's people are put through the test. It's no mistake that the Spirit, as soon as Jesus is baptized, drives Him out. It's the Word drives him out into the wilderness to be tested and tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a wilderness where you're put to the test and you say, that's got to be an awful thing. But no, the Bible says when we come to those times of testing and temptation, we rejoice because we know that the testing of our faith refines us. Wilderness is a place where God's people learn who and whose they are. It's in the wilderness where God's people are put to the test. But it's also in the wilderness where God speaks to His people. It's out there in the dry desolate places. God speaks to His children. Is that way for Jesus? As Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism, He sees. That's kind of different about Mark's Gospel. Matthew and Luke, the emphasis is on what the people that day saw. In John's Gospel, it's the emphasis on what John himself saw that day. But for Mark, the, the focus is, is centered in on Jesus. It is, it is tightly drawn around Jesus. As Jesus comes up out of the water, He sees heaven open and He hears. He hears the voice from heaven. Say, you are my beloved child. And with you I am well. Why does it start in the wilderness? It starts in the wilderness because
because that's where God's people learn who and whose they are. It's in the wilderness where God's people put to the test. And even in that time of testing, they find a way to rejoice because they know God is doing a refining work in their life. It's in the wilderness. We actually hear God say, You are my child. Of course, I think those why questions apply not just to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it also probably applies to the story of our life. Each and every single one of us find us in, find ourselves in wilderness places. We don't always stay there. Our stories aren't always in the wilderness for long. But at some point, all of us find ourselves there. Out there where we are thrust on the grace of God. Out there where we are put to the test. And we might be tempted to ask the question, God, why are you letting me go through this? Why are you dragging me down into the valley? Why, God? Maybe, just maybe, God's saying, I want you to know who you are. And I want you to know whose you are. Maybe, just maybe, God is saying, I'm, I'm still working on you. There are parts of you that I am changing, refining, purifying. You might be like my son. Maybe, just maybe, God's saying, I'm letting you go into the wilderness to get you to a place where you might be quiet enough to hear me say, you are my beloved. And I am pleased. Begins in the wilderness.